When you're faced with something like this, you of course want to be able to catch up, right? And you want to be able to have your time before you have to start making decisions because you don't have the full context to a lot of the things that happened in the past. So you have to be very careful with just coming in and wanting to change the world because that doesn't work. But at the same time, it's a startup. And so the pace is, as you know, <laughs> crazy, right? And you, you can't way too long to make some of the decisions because then, you know, your business becomes obsolete. Hi, I am Sophie Vaux, and this is the Rise and Play podcast. In the show, I sit down with influential thought leaders of the gaming industry to deconstruct how they create the best team and company cultures in order to create the best games. Every episode brings actionable insight to improve your leadership, self-awareness, and emotional management skills. Because becoming a better leader starts with becoming a better human. So, are you ready to unlock your full potential in life and business? Let's begin. This episode has been brought to you by our sponsor, Appadeal an all-in-one growth platform for mobile app creators of any size. While you have probably heard about Appadeal as a mediation solution, it has already expanded into much more than that. Appadeal unlocks access to a new generation of advanced business intelligence tools, including LTV forecasting, user acquisition and creative automation, and of course, the mediation platform that can work out of the box or be managed manually. Being one of the very few independent platforms left in the market, Appadeal delivers unbiased solutions for mobile app creators to establish and scale their businesses rapidly. Sign up at appadeal.com. So today I'm very excited to resume the session on site of podcast recording. For the session today, I have Isabel with me in my new studio in my apartment in Berlin. So before we start, let me introduce you to Isabel. So Isabel Enriquez has 15 years of experience in management, operations, strategy, and production in the gaming industry. She is Brazilian and has a diverse background in gaming, previously acting as a studio director and lead producer at Maxis and Electronic Arts, and has worked on multiple AAA blockbuster franchises, including The Sims, Call of Duty, and Madden. She has created products and managed teams all over the world and now lives in Berlin, where she is the co-CEO and COO for Clang Games, one of the best-funded gaming startups in Europe, and is also acting as the executive producer for the game Seed, an MMO society simulator being developed at Clang. So, hi Isabel, very excited to have you here in my apartment slash studio. How are you today? I am good. How are you this fine evening? Yeah. We have planned for this evening quite some time and uh, as we have met uh, as well over lunch and uh, connected as actually two female executives in the gaming industry and we have never met before. That's amazing that a month after we are here recording a podcast. So I'm very excited about this conversation this evening. Me too, me too. Yeah. And that's actually quite crazy that after a quite busy working day on a Monday starting the week, we still have the energy to sit here and record the podcast. Let me begin with a question. What is the thing that is the most exciting for you these days with your work or your life? Oh, this is such a tough question because I feel like the last year has been a really 
big year for me. Um, I got married and I joined playing as co-CEO and COO. I moved to Berlin. I also got a new puppy. So there's been a lot of things that I'm excited about, both on the professional and the personal side. I'm not really sure which one is the most exciting, but it's definitely made me think that I'm, I'm very thankful for the year that I've had. I can relate having moved myself in different countries, having adopted as well a pet. Those life changes are, uh, I would say, quite stressful, busy times, but also very rewarding as you settling in, you know, new place, new dynamics. So a lot going on. And on top of that, I was really curious to start the conversation with your multiple roles at Clan Games. So what is new information for me as you are also acting as the executive producer for the game? So I wanted to begin first with your role as the co-CEO. So it's also unusual for me. I haven't heard or seen so much of a role as a co-CEO. So I was curious to ask more about it. And CEO as a role as well is very specific to a game organization, but also a phase of a company. So I wanted to cover more as well with you what was two responsibilities, at least as a co-CEO and COO would covering today with your role. Yeah, you're not the only one. I've also, I don't think I've ever seen co-CEO before, but that is Clang for you. Clang is unique in, in a thousand ways and more. I have three amazing and wonderful business partners. One is a very, very talented CTO, an amazing visionary as my CCO. And the CEO was is also an incredible visionary that had the idea for Seed almost a decade ago. But the current CEO, his name is Mundi. Hey, Mundi. He has had multiple, you know, successful businesses, but he had never really run a gaming company. And I think that in a lot of startups that can work, but with the ambition and the size of the game of Seed, they felt like they needed a little bit more experience, at least on the product strategy, as well as execution side to be able to grow and scale the studio, but then also think about what would be the best way for us to tackle such a massive opportunity that was the MMO that we're building. So we got introduced actually through another female executive in the industry. She used to be the executive producer for FIFA, and we met at EA Sports when I was still working on Madden. I had been working at Maxis already on The Sims for some time, and she reached out to me and said, hey, you and I both know that there are very few games out there that really catch our eye, and this one has caught my eye, and I hear that they're looking for someone to help them make this a reality. And so... My other three business partners are from Iceland, and so they flew me to Iceland to meet them because, of course, as you go into a business like this, it's almost like a marriage, right? You need mm -hmm. to really be able to get along really well and, and understand how to negotiate and how to just have good days. And um, it was quite incredible, actually. It was from... The first moment that we were together, we just spoke the same language, even though we were from very different backgrounds. And the four of us just clicked. And to me, it was, of course, I was still on the fence if I should go. It's a big move, moving to Berlin, moving to startup. I've, I had always worked in big studios before. But then when I got home, my wife uh, happened to be there with us. She was like, you're the last missing piece. It's just so incredible how well you all got together and how aligned you are from a strategy perspective. And so that's the way that we complement each other, right? And that's how the four of us play to our strengths to make sure that uh, we have the best chance of success. Mm -hmm. Let's take... Um 
a pause here in the process of how you met the, the team of co-founders. In my own experience, I joined recently uh, the Savage Games team and a team of co-founders. And it's very relatable what you just shared, like uh, finding myself being the missing piece of a puzzle. But it was its own process. And I'm curious here to hear more You come as the new person in a leadership team, so quite a very important role, but you are not part of the history. Mm-hmm. And they know each other for so many years now, so there's already like kind of a relationship form, knowledge, previous knowledge. And you come here trying to find if it's the right move for you. So was there any processes or ways that you spend time together to have more clarity, even like more for yourself, that this is the right team for me, the right path forward? How could you get more clarity through the process before you join? So actually having that female executive that I mentioned, Lena, give her thumbs up was a big deal for me. I really admire her as a professional. And she's also from Iceland. So she knew about their background and understanding that she also admired not only them, but the product. That to me meant a lot in what the ambition for it was and also the potential. But honestly, I do think that it was probably one of the most unorthodox hiring situations because we spent 48 hours together, right? Because they flew me to Iceland, but it wasn't a, oh, come to our offices. And you know, what we're used to when we we get flown over where it's like, okay, you have a bunch of meetings throughout the day, you have maybe lunch and a dinner. It was more like, We will show you Iceland as we talk about, you know, the strategies of what we're trying to do and where we want to get to. And so it was a full 48 hours together and I didn't want to kill them at the end of it, I think was the process. It was actually quite interesting and I felt excited actually about that time that we we talked about it and just how many more perspectives they were able to add to my own Um, that that was really what sealed the deal for me. I felt like I was helping them shape what they were talking about, but also learning a lot from that experience. And I always wanted to be learning. So to me, it was the right time to make that move. Very, very interesting. And so one year forward after you join the team, I'm curious now with the role as a co-CEO and covering as well CEO, and you talk about that complementary. How does that shape in reality and in practice with the responsibility of a CEO? And I don't know if there was a COO before, but what were really the gaps, like the missing pieces that you came and really brought and, and the things that you can look back on and say, okay, I was like helping with, it actually happened. And wh- what are those things that you have achieved a year after that you're proud of and you would like to share? Sure. Um, it's very interesting. When, when I think about this last year, it feels like a lot more time as I think it usually does. It was my first experience in a startup. So for the first question, how do we do the CEO role together? So uh, my business partner, Mundi, he is amazing at business development and having incredible ideas and being a a visionary. He is also great at investment capturing. So being able to actually find the right investment calls for us, how do we establish our advisors and and how do we want to do things like that? So a lot of those things are the things that he's focused on. I also usually uh, kid around a company that he's a branding genius. So one of the things Mm -hmm. that, you know, I've really wanted him to do is really push for the branding of Clang because it is very unique in its own way. And one of the things that actually captured me to go was the fact that it felt like a very different company 
for example, they had, you know, a podcast that I've never actually seen a startup video game have a podcast. And when I started listening to it, when I was still thinking about joining, the first episode of the podcast starts with a bunch of questions that the podcast is going to cover. And a lot of those questions were existential questions that I asked myself every day, you know. And so those were the small things that captured me to come to Clang. And that is very much... Uh, Mundi as the CEO. So the things that that he focuses on are, are more on that front and how we can expand the franchise and really think outside the box. For me, it's more the long-term vision planning of the company. Where do we want to go? Where do we want the product to go? A lot of product strategy is really where I spent most of my time in the last year. The studio and the product management, making sure that we have the right structure, creating you know an understanding of our budget and how do we want to make the best decisions that we can right now and then also give us enough buffer for us to test and really listen to our community in the future while still being you know fiscally responsible just understanding the culture and, and the company and the way that we want people to work inside of the company as well as the business health and just risk management so that's a little bit of how we separate the two roles before me, there wasn't a COO. There was a COO in the past, but for the last year and a half before I joined, there wasn't really a lot of, of work. So a lot of the um, disciplinary leads were doing a lot of the COO work. So of course, you know, from a budget planning and all of those wonderful operations, conversations, production, how do we want to run, what type of production management, you know, methodology do we want to have, all those details were things that I took over and made sure that, you know, we had alignment across the board. One thing about the distribution of your responsibility with CEO, I find it fascinating where maybe it's un unusual, but maybe that's the most responsible thing to do, where sometimes it's hard actually as the CEO to be responsible for everything and, and recognizing that you have strengths in some area and maybe like blind spots or not, not where you're strong at and then you need to have someone or some structure to compensate for it. And I'm uh, curious here about the journey of a conversation or even the tools you had to separate and split those responsibility clearly. Is it something that you have figured out the journey or that was there from the beginning, part of the discussions? Did you write, you know, your, like your own in a leadership team with mission card, write your own job description? How did you go through this process to separate clearly the task and also communicate it to the rest of the organization? Mm -hmm. So we delineated it after I came into the company. And so we sat down together and we looked basically what the company needed, right? What does Clang and Seed as a game need for us and to succeed? And then we looked at what are our strengths and what do we bring, you know, to the table and how would it make more sense for us to divide and conquer here? Then, of course, we had to talk to our board members and make sure, okay, this is how we want to structure it. Is everyone okay? Are there any blind spots? And... And anything that, you know, we, we haven't really seen the team be able to deliver that we want to make sure that we start delivering in the future. And then after that, we talked to the whole team and in all hands to say, okay, this is the way that we're structuring this. These are the areas of responsibility that myself is going to take on. These are the areas of responsibilities for Mundi and how it actually looks within the org. That was the way we tackled it. A second question I had around the transition, because it's a transition as well, you joining the leadership team and uh, coming with your experience, also a vision with your responsibility as the co-CEO and COO. How did you build at first the trust inside the leadership team? Like It's still a very strong team that has worked together for a long time and you come here with 
well, initiatives, probably ideas, then to roll it out to the rest of the organization. I've uh, seen this fairly multiple times where new leadership team members eager for uh, to, to do the change and sometimes either the leadership team or people like teams are not ready for the change. So how have you approached it to yeah, build the trust and accompany people through the change of the structure you wanted to implement for the clank? When you're faced with something like this, you of course want to be able to catch up, right? And you want to be able to have your time before you have to start making decisions because you don't have the full context to a lot of the things that happened in the past. So you have to be very careful with just coming in and wanting to change the world because that doesn't work. But at the same time, it's a startup. And so the pace is, as you know, <laughs> crazy, right? And you, you can't way too long to make some of the decisions because then, you know, your business becomes obsolete. And so I think for me, it was about prioritizing what were the decisions that I could wait on making and what were the ones that were affecting at the end of the day, our efficiency as a team or would affect the quality of the game with the amount of time that we had to make it. And those were the ones that I focused on making first and giving myself as much time as I could to get the buy-in from all the stakeholders in order to make it and, and get also the context from all the stakeholders of the things that were done in the past in order to be able to do it. And then the other decisions that I could wait for, I gave myself more time to be able to organically gather the context and move forward that way. So that's the way that I did it. The question that you ask, how did you build trust? I still honestly don't know like how I build the trust with the other three. It helps being that missing piece of the puzzle that you mentioned because it is really about looking at each other's strengths and trusting each other's strengths. To that point, I think that that catalyzes the trust building because, you know, I can give a lot of examples of things that happened on The Sims or Madden or Call of Duty. And, you know, it's the same thing for Odur or for Ivar or for Mundi. And I think that that way we kind of get to the same level of alignment based on what we have seen and move forward together. Yeah, now that I'm reflecting on it, it's interesting how we have a similar, actually, <laughs> experience I represented like uh, missing strengths that the leadership team needed, like really focused on culture, organization, values. So I was known as well in the space for it with the work I was doing with Rise and Play. And the need was very clear from the beginning. And that also helped probably to build the credibility and authority in the group. So I think this is what you're talking about here, where you have your credentials, your experience. And when the rest of the leadership team has awareness that this is really something they're missing, so they are asking for it, right? It's like, no, like they need the help. I think it helps in that mindset that you are more welcome that you come in and force the change when they are not aligned or they didn't want that change. So I think as well, it was a similar experience for me. And yeah, in some way, building the trust, spending time with the people, understanding yeah, the history, the legacy. I think that was a big piece as well of the work, like understanding the con where are we, what are the sensitive points, and trying to navigate through that puzzle of, you know, organization, people's sensitivity on several topics in the past, and trying to work with the pieces you can move and the ones that are a little tough, you know, although they are important, and you know, okay, those need time and to be built organically like you mentioned another thing i wanted to ask then as well about coming with those roles so it's quite big responsibility when you touch on the product strategy and then organization process did you have as well the mission to build your team to execute the vision you have 
or you had to work with an existing team and who are the people then who are reporting to you or the teams are reporting to you working closely with you to execute the plan that you have in mind for the company? The first question, which is around, did we have already a structure or a team? Um, when I came in, I think we were at around 55 or 60 people. We're now at around 84 and growing. We're, we need to scale up. It is an MMO at the end of the day. So there was already a team um, that had gone through a lot. And as you mentioned, a lot of uh, attempts to tackle such a, an ambitious vision as is SEED. I today have heads that report into me. So I have a head of finance, a head of people, a head of design, head of art, head of production, head of engineering. So all of us make the decisions together. But at the end of the day, the executive producer hat um, that I wear is uh, a little bit different than I think uh, what most um, studios use as, as executive producers. So one of the changes um, that I wanted to make when I joined is there is a lot of uh, different ideas and opinions of what a producer does inside of the industry, right? Depending on what studio you're in, it, it is a very different, uh, different, diff very different types of responsibility and role that the, that the producer can have. And in my experience, the best model that I've seen is actually to have a very specific person that's look looking at project. And Clang didn't have that delineation. Producers were mainly just looking at project. And I actually think that the PO or the product owner role was somewhat inherited by the design team. And the design team having to do a lot of the product strategy, business delineation, talking to publishing, talking to user research, and just gathering feedback and, and understanding how we were going to shape the game felt like a lot for that team to take over. So that was one of the changes that we instituted. So there is the side of production that's more focused on project, and there is the side that is more focused on PO or product ownership. So when I say that I'm the acting executive producer, it is the PO of POs, let's put it that way. So it's more on the product side of the house. But of course, because I also wear the COO hat, I also have a head of production on the project side that reports to me. So I also has, have to look at the project side and the operations piece. So with this change, we were able to have more qualitative conversations around where we were with the 55 people and where we wanted to get to and how we wanted to grow our teams, but also how we wanted to grow our product and what were the outcomes we wanted to reach and the objectives that we wanted to get there. And that was our guiding light as to how there's not only the company, but also structured all of the development process, right? So we created specific milestones and those milestones are tied to objectives and key results, which I'm sure everyone that's listening to also has their own. And those are the things that are leading the team today. We moved to Agile, kind of a, a, a waterfall version before. And so we're moving more to an, an Agile version. And one of the big changes as well was empowering the teams. So with these OKRs, the idea is that, of course, the leadership team is giving the direction and alignment. But at the end of the day, the best, the experts on the team are the people, people that are actually building um, the game. As long as we have those objectives in our minds and we have uh, a great alignment tool uh, in order to be able to understand what are the decisions the teams are making, we should always empower the teams to be making a lot of these decisions based on where the product is at. Yeah, so let's talk uh, here about scaling. And as you mentioned, because what I see as well as a challenge is 
as you are here joining well, structuring teams, who should be working on what, are the responsibilities, you're also hiring at the same time. So I wonder when you join, how did you manage your focus and your priorities hiring and making sure at the same time that the people you're hiring are going through the organized structure and that you are not as well losing the people that you're hiring, which is a common case in startup where everything is a bit, you know, <laughs> in chaos. Well, we all know that. And uh, then you need to scale at the same time and grow. And then all the problems that are really functional and fundamental are still there. So how did you prioritize those against scaling, like the need as well to grow quickly? Well, to be honest, we're still <laughs> we're still working on it. That is one of the biggest challenges, right? And, and we're doubling in size in a very uncertain macro environment. So there's a lot of things to consider and a lot of different scenario plannings that we did, especially as we just got our Series C investment in in order to be fiscally responsible as possible while giving the product the biggest chance it could. We're still kind of doing this, but to be honest, actually, when I joined Clang, I already felt like there was so much more structure than I expected, especially on the onboarding side. There was very specific probation periods, which is a big thing here in Germany, where you know, you're know you in probation for the first six months. The phases of probation were very well documented. Like you would get an email you know, reminding you as a manager, and here is the template. And so there were a lot of things that I was really positively um, surprised at, but We're still always learning. One of the things that we're looking at and one of the directives that, that I gave to the people team is how can we automate a lot of these things? Actually, Slack has a lot of great tools around automation of onboarding and really, you know, where people are just clicking through what are all the steps and all the pages and confluence that they need to read in order to be able to understand the vision, how we work, um, how do you open a ticket, where does it go, or how do you, you know, actually have your environment set up and how do we work on things? So... That's something that we are still working on and still trying to make it as easy as possible for people not to miss any important information for them to be successful at Clang. And then the other piece is also how, how does the onboarding and hiring so many people affect your planning, right? The way that we're doing that is just by being very conservative around capacity planning and giving people enough time to grow and learn and, and have the conversations with their leads and having a specific buddy that's going to walk them through in the first two or three months on how they should be doing things. Like the idea of the automation, I think it makes sense as well as you scale and it's always like going through the same cycle. Yeah. And so for that size of organization, how big is your uh, the team for people, for example, to support the staff through onboarding, growing, what I call the whole section of employee growth to make sure that people are properly followed, trained, growing, that they have visibility on how they grow, how they get promoted, salary raise. So how big is your staff around that? So right now I think we are around four and we want to grow to like a good seven or eight. I had a great school there, which was EA. EA is great at career planning. Uh, and I was a people manager inside of EA. It was always drilled like, okay, this is, it's really important for you to have development plans for everyone, for you to have those development plans actually match the goals of the company, create, you know, opportunities within where people want to go and all those things. So we've recently revamped our growth plan inside of Clang and we've just instituted new performance cycles 
We've also, you know, instituted salary benchmarking, which was something that, you know, not all startups have, but was something that was really important for me to say, okay, I'm paying everyone fairly with the market. So we hired reports to be able to make sure that, you know, from a Berlin-based startup, we were paying what in every single discipline and every single grade what people deserved to be paid. And we brought everyone up to that level recently, which was very exciting, you know, for a company that's pre-revenue. And I couldn't have done it without my people team, right? But because growth and, you know, having development plans and growth plans is so important for us, that's one of the reasons why we want to grow to eight so that we can train our people managers and train people to organically, you know, on a day-to-day basis, talk to others about what do they want to learn and how do they want to grow inside of Clang. Yeah, it sounds like it. And both things structurally take time. Yeah. Also the staff to support properly. I'm going as well through those changes, so I'm really curious as well. As you join and with your experience, like EA has a also great reputation and history of having very big, a large team and well-organized. So I'm sure there's a lot of processes that you have joining Clang and how to bring it to a startup level. I think this is always kind of a, at the same time, the exciting challenge where how to bring this knowledge in a startup way, like without the heaviness of the process of like the big bureaucratic process of big organization, but still at the same time, the result, right? What's what you're talking about. And my last question about your current role Like, how do you do it between co-CEO, COO, and executive producer? How do you sleep? <laughs> no, but more seriously, I'm, I'm, how do you manage those responsibilities? And is there a reason why those three responsibilities are under the same person or it's more temporary situation? Yeah, it's uh, hopefully a temporary situation. How do I do it? I'm very organized. <laughs> Organization is the name of the game. I try to actually listen to the teams as much as I can. And one of the reasons we were talking about, you know, you were asking me if I was coming from the office. That's one of the reasons why I like to be in the office is because I like to just listen to people and where their heads are at. And if that can be some sort of inkling for me of, oh, okay, this might be something that I want to investigate and then understand what is the urgency for me to take a look at that and then prioritize, right? And then just as we do with a backlog of a game, it is also the way um, that we should be thinking about our own lives. It is a lot of change. I mean, I do feel like I'm on a train that's traveling at like, I don't know, 600 miles an hour. And there are days that I want to, I just want to get off. But most days it's quite rewarding. And I like the fast paced nature of it. And I like the fact that I can do a lot of context switching, which I think was something that it took me a very long time to understand about myself. Because in the bigger studios like EA and Activision, you're in a box, right? You're that role and those responsibilities. And that would bore me very quickly. So I'm kind of, you know, sometimes mad at myself that it took me 15 years to understand <laughs> that what I like is that flexibility of being able to context switch um, multiple times in a day. Quite impressive. Um, and let's uh, zoom out a little bit now more on your career. So we spent some time like where you are today. But I wanted to hear more about your previous experience at EA. What was your role and focus? So you said you were working on specific games as well on people management position. So my first experience in the industry was actually at Activision. And what I took, the key learning from Activision was actually to be very focused on product quality. I had to play the build. And I never forget, it was a Friday meeting. I don't know why that stuck in my brain, but I had to play the build every week. They would send a new one. 
And I had to play the build and then send like, you know, four or five pages back of feedback on, you know, what we wanted the build to do. And I had this whole like study around multiplayer levels and, you know, how many people actually played different multiplayer, you know, maps. So which types of maps we wanted in the next Call of Duty. So I feel like Activision really taught me about looking at that quality side of things. Then after Activision, I went to EA. I worked in EA Sports for a very long time in Orlando. NDA really taught me about executional excellence. It's pretty much, I think, the best in class when it comes to production and because, you know, the football season is not going to wait for a game to come out. So you have to ship on a very specific day every single year. And that really taught me how to go through a bunch of different development cycles from, you know, pre-production all the way to production to alpha to beta to launch to then live services and then do it all over again and do it all over again and I think that that repetitive you know nature kind of it actually built a lot of risk resilience now that I think about it you know nothing really phases me that much you know a lot of times there's things inside of Clang that people in production are just like oh my god and I'm just like eh. I've seen worse, you know, try to try to get an Ignite, you know, game to go into Frostbite in one year, you know, it was insane. But that's really what they taught me as well as the career piece that I mentioned to you and just being very focused on development. And then I was shipped off to Spain. I'm so grateful and so humbled that I was picked to do that, where they wanted to open a development studio in Spain. They had localization and testing already but they wanted to open development for the first time. And so they chose me to be the studio director. And so I started from scratch. We had the first eight and I grew that organization. And it was within that one year timeline that I talked to you about. So it was co-development with Orlando and we had to grow the studio and actually create, you know, a whole culture and understanding of AAA that also it was in Madrid. It wasn't in Barcelona and Madrid didn't have a lot of AAA studios. So it was really challenging, but honestly, also the people that I met are to this day, the people that I just love to talk to and think about in my career. And then I grew to about 70 people. And that was when Maxis wanted to do the same thing for The Sims. But as I joined, they changed their priorities a little bit. And so I was then pushed to be more on the product side as a lead producer. So my job there was to create a strategy for live services for The Sims 4, establishing a remote studio for Europe, and at the same time creating like a roadmap for the Maxis studio in San Francisco on the live services side. Wow. It's very impressive, I have to say, like big franchises, and also from zero to uh, one, two, I would say different stages. So I have to say it's rare to have this whole experience where you had the opportunity to also start a team from scratch and be able to grow it to 70 people and then, you know, uh, multiple locations and studios. And something I have faced as well in my career when I changed uh, companies and teams, and you mentioned it as well when you started uh, your own studio. Like To me, there's, of course, an emotional attachment to the people, the team you form. You put a part of yourself, you know, in the vision, how you build things. What was the point for you when you thought you were ready for a change or a change came to you and you said, okay, this is the moment to live. And how do you feel about those changes as, as well, you live behind in some way, what you have built? Yeah, for sure. You're so right. Actually leaving eSports Madrid to go join Maxis was harder than I thought. You're, you're very right about that. And even though we were 70, right? And we were getting to that 
stage where you don't know everyone. There's a stage where it changes, you know, where where you know everyone in their background and you talk to them and and then all of a sudden it's like, oh, this person got hired. I don't know who they are, you know, and <laughs> there is a, a little bit of a change there. And when I left, um, oh, the team was just so nice. They created like this huge gift and some of them crocheted like some uh, some of the Sims plushies and it was, they are, they're just... They're amazing people to this day. I, I hold them dear in my heart. So I think that that was the hardest transition for me, to be honest. Even though I think my whole life, I would have thought that leaving Maxis was the hardest because The Sims was my favorite game of all time. That's the game that you know made me a gamer and the game that got me to really be passionate about games and go into that industry. But when I saw Seed and when I saw the potential... It just felt to me like the type of product that I would love to wake up every day and build. Yeah, thanks for sharing. It never gets easy. I... <laughs> Yeah. But I find like um, it's a moment where you like reflect on your career, what you want to do for yourself, because I think at least for me, it's a tendency as well to feel responsible for the team and the future, like really needed. Things will collapse if you're not there and then actually they don't. A bit griefing, like, you know, letting go and as well um, be a bit more focused on the self. Like, what would I like to do if I was not attached to the responsibility that I have with what I've built? Especially, like, again, building something from scratch. You've built an organization and brought people together and created probably a culture. Part of yourself is there. Mm -hmm. It totally is. But, you know, we're all here for a finite amount of time. And so I think we should all just... Do what makes us happy at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Let's use our imagination here. Next year, what is it you're really passionate about that you would like to see? So I think at Clang, what I would love to see is more and more that I'm working myself out of the job. You know, someone once told me that that's what we do <laughs> in production, and that's true. I would love to see the team empowered and making decisions and knowing exactly what they're building and feeling excited about it and testing it with players and as it grows seeing it take a life of its own and really create the network effects that we are expecting seed to create so i am very excited for that in the next year um, even though it is also somewhat daunting to think about it because it is a very big game it is an mmo we are trying a lot of things for the first time And I'm pretty sure there will be some hidden experiences there that we were not foreseeing today. For the industry as a whole, I honestly don't know. I feel like the whole Web3 conversation is a very interesting one. It's very polarizing, but it's also a very interesting one. And what I think is exciting to think about is how will the idea of ownership for us change inside of games? When I think about how many hours of my life I've spent playing video games, and I'm pretty sure it's the same with you, you know, how, how much of that could actually evolve into something completely different and something that feels my own? I feel like it's still in its infancy, but seeing the technology grow into something that, um, mind boggling, I think it's something I'm excited about. And I do hope that we focus on what the player is experiencing and what the player really is benefiting from this new technology more than anything to really grow it into something crazy that we couldn't think about today and also more diversity like just the fact that you know we're two women sitting here and having a conversation I feel like uh, in my 15 years it has improved so much 
that I am so excited about how much more it's going to improve and how many more stories we will see actually being told because these new diverse voices are entering the fray and are telling their life experiences. So I'm excited for that too, to live those experiences through the diversity that will enter the, the industry. Thanks a lot for sharing and I can double down on this because uh, of course with uh, Rise and Play, I can tell like we are many, many women actually doing uh, great things in games, maybe not so visible, but that's also why we're taking the time here to talk and tell different stories that didn't have a space to be told before. Well, thanks a lot, Isabel, for joining the conversation today. And I feel like I have a lot more to ask you uh, offline, but that won't be recorded. It's more for people to follow up with you and contact you directly if they would like to connect. That's what I encourage as well with this uh, community of conscious leaders that is being built with Rise and Play. So thanks a lot for all your insights, your wisdom, and I look forward to our future conversation, but it will be offline. <laughs> yes, thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this latest episode of the Rise and Play podcast. I am trying to grow a community of conscious leaders across the industry and beyond. So if you want to join this movement, please share the podcast with other conscious leaders because we have so much more we can learn from each other. Also, please don't forget to follow the show so you don't miss out on future content. Every episode is packed with actionable insights that will help you improve your leadership skills now. And if you are interested in learning more on the topics that we discussed today, you can find more insights on riseandplay.io and there you will also find my free masterclass on conscious leadership. So have a great week and until the next time.